But if you don't usually open the bibles, you need to open them instead to follow along. I'm sure as we, we read Daniel, that some of us were wondering what on earth is going on. In fact, most of the commentators say this chapter is probably the only one in the Bible that cannot be preached. You cannot do a sermon on Daniel 11. They say technical, lengthy Bible study, maybe, but not a sermon. Another one described it more humorously as a, a bit like a mosquito on Blackpool Beach. I don't know why this is Blackpool Beach, but um, they said there's so many options from who to feast on that you never know where to begin. And uh, here it, it is a complex um, future history to Daniel. Uh, we have this angel speaking to him, laying out following 367 years of what we now call history in great, incredibly intimate and intricate detail. He lays out the next four centuries of political history in the ancient Near East, and particularly how it will affect the people of Israel. In fact, so detailed is this prophecy that some have, some have argued that it must have been written after the events. There is no way anyone could give such an accurate overview of the next four centuries of world history. It's just impossible. But this is exactly what it is. We're told when Daniel heard these things in verse 1. In the first year of the Persian king, Darius the Mede. We know exactly when that is. 539 BC is when he heard this prophecy. And we know when the events he hears about took place because they are recorded in our own history books. We know the exact dates of the prophecy. Verse 2 to the end of the chapter, as we will see, give us an overview of the events of 530 BC all the way to 163 BC. So here is a prophecy telling us exactly what is going to happen over the next maybe 400 years. Daniel 10, if you remember, Daniel had been given this vision of the heavenly places, the spiritual battles between Satan and Christ, between the angels and the demons, uh, these great spiritual forces that are governing all world battles, all political meanderings, all even individual struggles and temptations. There is a heavenly spiritual battle going on behind the scenes. But now in chapter 11, we come back to earth and we see how those spiritual battles affect the political realities and the warring factions within our world history. What we have here in Daniel 11 is, I don't know if, if you go down to the uh, museum in Cardiff, and they've got 100 years of BBC history. And down there, I just went uh, this week, They've got this teleprompter, you know, this massive screen is the camera, the newsreader, that teleprompter. That's what Daniel 11 is. It's God's teleprompter that Daniel can read as it scrolls up over the next 400 years of local and world history. He's reading out for us the knowledge of God about the future. And so, first of all, we're going to do just that. We're going to go through this teleprompter. We're going to fly through these verses to help us see the, 
what we call history, but what he called the future, is working out two lessons at the end. There's no other vision like this in the entire Bible. We do have, as we've seen already in Daniel, remarkable prophecies. But if you if you understand this prophecy and of how detailed it is, of how knowledgeable it is about Daniel's future and about the future of Israel and the world, you will not be able to help but say, is God, is the real God. There is no other God like Daniel's God. So let's go through this teleprompter. Let's fly through the next 400 years of world history. We begin where Daniel is at present in the Persian period of history. We've got some slides, and hopefully the first one will come up. This is verse 2. Verse 2, you'll notice, outlines four kings of Persia, the last of which is, as the verse says, strong and wealthy. And we know the fourth king of Persia, which was Xerxes. He would invade Greece with a mighty army, but be defeated in the Battle of Salamis in 480 BC. And just like that, at the end of verse 2, we have finished with Persia. It's taken up so much in the book of Daniel and just summarized in one verse as this is what's going to happen and this is the end of it. One writer puts it like this God used Persia to send Israel back home from exile. The superpower did its job and to the dustbin of history it goes. God supported it and protected it to accomplish the sovereign purposes and then dropped it in the dustbin of history. If we look at the second slide, because after verse 2, we move forward 130 years to a mighty king, verse 3, to Alexander the Great, who ushers in the great Greek period of 336 He's incredibly successful in his military and political maneuvers, doing, as you see in verse 3, according to his will. He is absolutely powerful. So just as he's expanding his borders, the prophecy says he is suddenly going to die, and we know when they did, 323 BC. And as a result, verse 4, his kingdom would divide into four under his four army generals. After a period of uncertainty, two kingdoms emerge out of Alexander's old empire. And these take up the rest of the chapter. This is where we fit a few minutes on slide three. Um, don't worry, don't forget this. This will be on um, the church now, I think, at some point in the future. But this is this is verse three on to the end of the chapter. That what you see behind us. And it's laid out in remarkable detail. The first kingdom is based in Syria, it's north of Israel, and so it's called the Kingdom of the North. The second is based in Egypt, and it's south of Israel, so it's called the Kingdom of the South. Sandwiched between the kingdoms of the North and the South, and experienced the next 150 years being fought over is little Israel, called in this chapter the Glorious Land. The first kings of South and North are mentioned in verse 5. They are, as we know, Ptolemy I of Egypt and Philip I of Syria. 
Seleucia, the king of the north, had once been a general of the Egyptians, which is why verse 5 prophesies that a prince of Egypt will gain power over the king of Egypt and have dominion over him. Verse 6 and leaves forward a few years, telling us of a marriage between two rival powers. And Ptolemy II's daughter, Marilis, marries Antiochus II of Syria. Seen at the time of an ideal political alliance, but Antiochus's first wife was jealous and murdered Berenice and probably poisoned Antiochus, who died soon after as well. And so verse 7 prophesies that Ptolemy III, brother of his now murdered Berenice, marched to take vengeance and gained this outstanding victory against the new Syrian king, Seleucus II. Or, verse 8, taking their gods and gold back with him to Egypt. But Seleucus II's son, verse 10, went on the offensive. They assembled a mighty army, overwhelming everyone on their way to Egypt, before reaching its very borders, but then being silently beaten back by Ptolemy, Ptolemy IV, as prophesied in verse 11. Not to be humiliated so easily, the Syrians attack again in verse 13. And this time, the Egyptians, verse 15, are completely overthrown. Not even their SAS, special forces can beat back the king of the north, says verse 15. Remember, this is a prophecy, and we know it's true because we read it in history. So Tychus III, verse 16, will stand his head and shoulders above all, having taken Israel, the glorious land, from Egypt forever. Then history repeats itself in verse 17. Marriage alliances between opposing kings are common in history. They've been common in, in Great Britain, between us and France, and any enemy that we have will try to marry off kings and queens, daughters and princesses, to, to make political alliances. And here we have the second one of the chapter, verse 17. The Egyptian king marries the daughter of the Syrian king, Antiochus III. Her name was Cleopatra, not that Cleopatra, but the great, great, great grandmother of the famous Cleopatra. This is how they ended up in Egypt. The Syrian king now thinks he controls Egypt because he's got this political alliance. But as verse 17 shows, it wouldn't work out that way. Because Cleopatra proves loyal to her new husband and to Egypt. And when, in verse 18, Antiochus turns his attention to the coastlands of Turkey, Egypt doesn't help. And he's defeated by a commander from the new rising bad boy of the world from the Roman Empire. And this Roman commander, verse 19, beats Antiochus, who retreats back to Syria before being killed in a homegrown rebellion. His success, if you start with me, his, his success, the solution of the fourth, verse 20, imposes massive taxes on Israel in order to, to control his nation's inflation, to repair the holes and exchequer caused by his expensive wars. But still, he was repentant in a court conspiracy. And now the stage is cleared for what verse 21 calls a vile person, or as we know him from history, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He stole the Syrian kingdom, which rightly belonged to his nephew, 
And then one of his first acts was to depose the Jewish high priest, verse 23, called here the Prince of the Covenant. Because another prominent Jew paid Antiochus off the large bribe to get that position. Ptolemy VI of Egypt, verse 25, marched against them, but there was a palace plot. Ptolemy had plans devised against him, and he was captured. So in order to find the way forward, instead of fighting the two kings, verse 27, Ptolemy and Antiochus sat around the table to broke their peace agreements. But as the verse says, both were lying, and no headway was really made. Then verse 28, wealthy Antiochus was moved in hatred against the Jewish religion and plundered the Jewish temple for a reprisal uh, for their Jewish dislike of him. Worse was to follow. He came back to Egypt, verse 29, but ships from Rome sailed via Cyprus coming to issue a warning to him not to do anything against Roman interests and fearful he withdrew. He was so enraged, he took his anger out on Jerusalem, as these verses say against the holy covenant people. <clears throat> his troops, verse 31, blasphemously entered the temple. They blocked the continuation of the morning and evening sacrifices and set up an altar in the high place, in the holy place of God, uh, to his God's use or the abomination of desolation, as verse 31 calls it. Some Jews, verse 32, cave in to the pressure and go over to his side. But those who know their God truly stand strong, firm against these winds of compromise and pay it, verse 33, with their lives, falling by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. If you thought Antiochus was evil at this point, it just gets worse. He absolutely loses the plot in verse 37, throwing away his own gods before declaring that he himself is the true God. Verse 38 records how temporarily successful he was before verse 40 being attacked from all sides. Initially, he's successful, but by verse 44, news of failing attacks trouble him, and in verse 45, he dies a lonely and miserable death. And that, in summary, is a whirlwind prophetical tour of nearly 400 years future to Daniel, but what we now know is history. And our history books record the accuracy, the incredible accuracy of that prophecy, thus proving that our God is the true God, as we'll see in a moment. That's all we've added to Daniel 11 of names of the details that this angel revealed to Daniel. We just added the names and the dates, but everything else is there. So why is Daniel being shown all of this? And what does it mean for us two and a half thousand years later, other than a history lesson and maybe in a rather boring one of that? But in a world where we are encouraged to throw off the ancient shackles of a bygone religion of Christianity. This chapter serves to strengthen our faith in God. The God who oversees his world with a remarkable 
surprising completeness. But Daniel chapter 11 proves, as I've said, that our God, God of the Christian faith, the God of Daniel, is the true and living God. Now, why do I say that? Well, there's another prophet called Isaiah. And in Isaiah 41, he tells us that all the gods of the religions of this world are a figment of people's imagination. But he says there, and I'll read it in a moment, that we can know where there is a true and living God and who the true and living God really is. There is an evidence that we can look for that proves or disproves the God we believe in. And the main evidence to look for, given there in Isaiah 41, is whether the God we worship can accurately spell out the future. Does the God we worship know what is to come in detail, with accuracy? For if our God makes a prophecy and then it fails to come true, then he clearly doesn't know the future and therefore it's false. This is what we read as our God challenges the so-called nations of the, the so-called gods of the nations in Isaiah 41. In verse 21 to 23 in the NIV, it says this. Present your case, says the Lord, right? Looking for evidence. Look for evidence. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen? Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know you are gods. Tell us what the future holds and then we'll know if you're true or false. That's what we say, isn't it? Does the God we worship know in intricate detail exactly what will happen in the future. Do we, as Christians, believe in a God who knows the future? The answer is yes, absolutely. How does he know? He knows because he is sovereign and in control. He knows because it is our God who raises nations up to protect his people or to discipline them as he knows best. It's he who raises superpowers up for his purposes and it is he who drops them into the dustbin of history when he's finished with them babylon see this in daniel babylon rises and falls at god's commands persia egypt greece rome eventually all so powerful in of them in and of themselves they think but actually just instruments in the hands of the Lord we worship today. The Antiochuses and Ptolemies and Cleopatras of the world think that they rule, think that they are in control of their own future, but God has purpose when they were born, when they rise, when they lose their power, what his purposes are for them. And this is how he knows the future so intricately and so accurately because he's designed it. He's planned it so. All other gods have been formed out of the figment of religious people's imagination. 
They can neither control or know the future. So Isaiah 41, 24 condemns the uselessness of the God of the world. He says, you are less than nothing and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. Why are you worshipping a God from the figment of your own imagination and you make it of stone wood? And then you bow down before it. Why, why would you do that? Your gods don't control the future. Your gods don't know the future. Why would you worship them? It's the height of foolishness to worship at the feet of a God who knows nothing and can do nothing. But in contrast, the God of the Bible knows and accomplishes all the future purposes that he has. So verses 25 and 26 of Isaiah 41, about the Lord it says, I have stirred up one from the north, and he comes, one from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if he were a potter treading the clay. He told of this from the beginning so that we could know or be, could know beforehand so that we could say he was right. If the God that we worship knows what is going to come in the next 400 years, in the next 2,000 years, and then as we go through it, we say, he's right. He's right again. He's right again and again and again. And over the next hundreds of years, the next centuries and millennia, we say, he's got it right again and again. How is this possible? It's possible because he's the true God. That's the only way it's possible. Think about an orchestra conductor with the sheet music before them. The entire symphony is notated from the first note to the final chords. Conducting those every crescendo, every diminuendo, you try to say that. Every tempo change, they know how each note will intertwine to create this masterpiece of sound. They raise their baton and the orchestra begins to play the piece according to the conductor's instructions, the tempo that they use, the beat of the baton, their moving melodies, beautiful harmonies. The audience is overwhelmed with the power and the beauty of the music piece. What is happening? Well, the knowledge that the conductor has of the future as they look at the music before them, leads to this extraordinary power in their hands as they draw hundreds of varied instrumentalists into one grand harmonized piece of music. <laughs> the orchestra aren't robots, are they? But they are following the script. In many ways, Daniel Elaine can be described as the sheet music that the Lord himself has written. His perfect knowledge of the future empowers him to conduct this world in accordance with his divine purpose. Notice how power is described in this chapter. It speaks of various kings and rulers who rise to prominence. They exert their power over vast Swathes of territories. 
Chapman mentions their military conquests, their political manoeuvrings, their alliances, their marriages, their showcasing the exercise of their power on this geopolitical level. Verse 2, exerting by his strength. Verse 3, a mighty king rules with great dominion. Then the sign, 21, 25, 36, all mention the power of the rulers of the nations. There's a great power play at work through the history of our world. But in contrast, notice how God reveals how he is actually the one in control of it all. Verse 2, he sets out his store. Now I will tell you the truth. About what? About my knowledge of the future. About my control of world events to come. He says, four kings shall rise and fall. Persian power will end. My conducting. Verse 14, he speaks of his intervention of a power place among kings. He says, these kings shall rise up. These violent men exalt themselves. They shall Force. You see the step again, verse 27 and 30. He raises the baton of the nation flies, drop the baton of the nations fall. And ultimately, even the most evil and powerful king of them all, Antiochus Epiphanes, shall not win against God's purposes, but shall face God's eternal judgment. Verse 45 ends like this: he shall plant. Tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. Mighty, mightiest, and most powerful rulers of all. Our God drops his baton in the end before they're finished. Why? Because our God is the true God. Our God is the all knowing God of heaven. The God of history, the God of the future. And as a consequence, secondly, this means that our faith grows in our gods. The whole of this chapter is showing that although the kingdoms of the world are mighty, and they use Israel as this insignificant bargaining chip in their global ambitions, it's this tiny nation. The trusts in the true gods. Whatever happens to their glorious land in Israel over the next four centuries, Daniel was shown, between Daniel's time and the coming of Christ, whatever happens, to them, they can rest in the knowledge that their God knows the future, that their God is the true God. They can trust him because he will raise nations. Who will trouble them, but he'll also humble those same nations who trouble them as well. Haven't we seen these themes throughout the book of Daniel? As Daniel and his three friends, they go through extraordinarily difficult times, yet they continue to be protected and even sometimes raised higher and higher in status while their enemies all crumble around them and die. Here is Daniel. Taken into exile by Babylon, they've already come and gone. Persia is now risen, he's in Persia, and they're soon to end. Daniel will see it all through because God will keep him. I wonder if you don't even believe there is a God. 
this morning. There's a common atheistic argument against believing in the God of the Bible. It says this. There are thousands of gods in the world, and I'm just rejecting one of them when I reject the Christian gods. I heard Ricky Gervais speak a while back, and he was speaking to a Christian, and he put it like this. He said, when you understand why you Christians dismiss all other possible gods, you will understand why I dismiss yours. They're all figments of your imagination. Well, here in Daniel chapter 11, we see why our God is absolutely different to all the other gods of all the other religions. Now, someone looks at a watch and says, that's a Rolex watch. And they say, well, I've got an imitation watch. And that's, that's the real one as well. You're like, no, it's not. Let me prove it to you. That's just a cheap plastic imitation. The second hand doesn't even match up with the right place. This is genuine. This is false. And that's what Daniel 11 is doing. It's saying, how do we know who the true God is, who the genuine Rolex is? We know because he knows the future. And he knows it in intricate detail and tells it to us beforehand so that he is provable by evidence in history. You can open your history books and say, my God, the Christian God, the God of the Bible, is not an inanimate piece of my imagination. His meticulous fulfillment of the predicted events must instill in us an unwavering assurance and optimism that the God we believe in is a true and real God. As we look ahead, we are to be confidently convinced that our own futures yet to unfold will also be under God's firm control, just as all of world history has been since the time of Daniel and before, since the creation of the uh, just as I finish, there's an interesting statement by Christ in John 13. John 13, Christ is prophesying who's going to betray him. And he's giving some indicators about who it's going to be among them who's going to wash his, be washed by them. His feet are going to be washed by Christ. And then he's going to dip the same uh, bread with Christ. And this is who he's going to be. And they're like, Jesus, why are you telling us? about the future. In John 13, verse 19, he says, this is why I'm predicting the future. He says, I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am here. It's a great argument, isn't it? When you see the fulfillment of my prophecy about who will betray me, you will know that I am the future, that I am the real God, I am the King of Kings, I am the one who can be trusted, and that everything I've told you otherwise has also been true because I know the future that you believe in. And this is the point of all prophecy. All prophecy is to prove or disprove the one who claims it, to show us the genuine nature of our God, to increase our faith in Him. As we, be, as we see Daniel 11 being fulfilled so accurately over the next four centuries.
True faith, you see, is not built on stirring something up within ourselves. I've got to try and believe a bit better and be a bit more stronger in faith. True faith comes from looking away from ourselves to the power sovereignty of God, to the foreknowledge, knowledge of the future of our gods, as proclaimed in the scriptures. And as we look to him, even this complex and detailed prophecy becomes a faith-building event as we understand it, and as we see again who the God, who the true God really is. Because we can now read that our God is true in our own history books. I was bored to stiff, bored stiff in school with history. I wish I'd spent more time studying it. Because there in my own history book pages was evidence my God was the true God and that I can trust him. So let us grow in faith, in confidence. And in assurance, as we look away from ourselves once more to the great, glorious God in heaven. Where we're going to stand and sing of this Jesus, come reign wherever sun, dirt is dirt, its excessive changes, but wherever we are in the world, there is one true God, one who can be trusted. It is the God revealed.